How'd you get all this gear? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I used to play music, and um, uh, basically, you know, as you grow older, you have less time to do things like play music. All your friends that play music get married and have families. <laughs> so the way you, you, you adjust, uh, also as you grow older, you have more money, but no time. So you adjust by buying gear and telling yourself you're going to be playing music at some point. <laughs> yeah. um, so this has just been sort of accumulating slowly, slowly. And uh, now I have stuff, which is... That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Are we going to ever hear you play guitar? You know, I'm, I'm not a guitarist. I'm a drummer. Wait, but... I have a guitar. But you know how to play it, right? I mean, you know, guitar is is a to play guitar well classical guitar is a skill but to play like crappy rock music is is no skill at all oh uh, it's really it's really easy to do yeah that. yeah it's it's pretty easy i mean i'm and i'm bad uh and i'm you know so i would never ever play uh in front of anyone but uh <laughs> but one you know it's uh that's that's uh that's that story so hold on shoddy did you did you say you like were off twitter for a few days this week yeah, so Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and and most of Tuesday, and even like since then, I've just been tweeting a couple times a day. Is it is it is it is it a terrible thing to say as a friend that I didn't notice? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that really hurts to me. Right, right. No, I mean, well, whatever. I mean, that's my my. Well, to be fair, I also noticed that you you weren't tweeting much, but maybe that's just your normal like lack of tweeting. <laughs> I think I think it's 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 a little bit more of that than uh, than that. But anyway, how come how come you've been off Twitter? Yeah, I mean, look, so. Um, I don't like Twitter after any kind of tragic, horrific event. So whether it's a terrorist attack or a mass shooting and, and so after the, the two mass shootings that we had, um, this past weekend in El Paso and Dayton, I, I had a sense that the, the rhetoric and the the competing narratives, all of that would be toxic and i just i didn't wa i didn't want to see that and i just wasn't ready to really deal with it also you know it's also a very sad event so um it's just hard to even deal with these questions in the first place but then to add on top of it the dumb commentary you that you get from right left and in between and everyone and it's almost predictable like you almost sort of knew what people were going to say right after these these mass shootings and I also knew that I wouldn't agree with my own side. So, you know, uh, and by that, I mean, I wouldn't agree with most of the folks on the center left, uh, Democrats, liberals, and so on. And I just didn't want to deal with that, I guess. Yeah. I mean, Twitter's weird, right? It's, it's um, especially at times like these, it, it ends up being a, um, especially, you know, commentators whose job it is to comment, it somehow also becomes some kind of almost venting slash support mechanism for them yeah like it's it's confessional and and there's a a need to uh say some sort of uncomfortable truths and then get affirmation from the the in-group which yeah i i agree it, it it leads to a kind of it's it's suffocating after after some event where again you know uh the commenters feel like they need to chime in and it is usually ill-considered and uh almost designed to get affirmation somehow yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's always this urge after a big news event that you'll tweet something that will be very timely and that you want it to get like a lot of retweets and you want people to be like, oh, good tweet. And you feel you feel like, you know, you're you're being useful or saying something useful. And um, 
it just there's something unhealthy about that dynamic where you're almost sort of thinking to yourself, even if somewhat subconsciously, what is the thing that I can tweet at a particular moment that will gain the most attention, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when I say that I, um, I felt like I would disagree with folks on, on my side of, of the, of the aisle. Um, I mean, I, as you, you know, as you know, I think, and, uh, and again, something we've been talking about for a while I don't view white nationalism or or right wing populism the way that a lot of folks on on the center left or or perhaps also le- just the left more generally do, and um, and my my not positive expectations about what some of the commentary would be about basically demonizing so. The problem is when you say like white nationalism is the threat and you have to treat white nationalism the way we treated Islamic extremism, that sounds nice. And that's the sort of thing that people were tweeting right away. And I remember that people were tweeting the same thing and writing about it in articles. This isn't just about Twitter. It's about the general mainstream narrative. After the Christchurch shootings in in New Zealand in March, there was a similar thing like, oh, we need to have like we we need to have a war on terror, but this time against white nationalists and this unwillingness to differentiate between different kinds of folks on the right. What is a white nationalist? I think, unfortunately, for a lot uh, for a lot of people um, in the kind of resistance, white nationalists are pretty much Trump voters or Trump supporters. I mean, anyone who was willing to go along with what they consider to be. A, and I think that you, there's an argument to be made that Trump himself has various white nationalist sympathies and all that. So then if you voted for Trump, then you are basically an enabler of white nationalism. So after after um, domestic terrorism or a mass shooting that targets uh, targets minorities, then you're going to have this discourse of all all white nationalists basically have blood on their hands. That's the kind of rhetoric that you saw. But then what that that's scary to me in a way because for a lot of these commentators, if a lot of people on the right are potentially or actually white nationalists. So are you pretty much, in effect, are you criminalizing a whole section of the country? Are you saying that they are all in some sense responsible directly or indirectly? for the climate of hatred that leads to mass shootings. That's the direction that I saw people going in. And that to me is a start of a very dangerous narrative. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Look, I now help me out because you're right. I haven't actually been on Twitter much. And uh, you're also right that, that it's not just Twitter. It's, and I would argue though, that we didn't necessarily have this kind of uh, quick reaction commentary happening in uh, you know, not pre-social media press. I mean, it, it seemed to be the lags, the necessary lags led to a, a more sort of considered thing. And blogging already became, you know, uh, before we had Twitter and the rest of it, it was more emotionally charged and sort of immediate. And the, the goal was to be out as quickly. But it seems to me, again, I, I've stayed away from most of the coverage as a result, All even the sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, legacy media coverage of the of the two shootings. How did the commentariat end up squaring uh, the apparent fact that the Dayton guy, uh, you know, was, uh, you know, uh, seems to seems to have been somewhat on the left, right? 
uh, or some sort of, or did I get that wrong? And and it seems like he had actual declared mental illnesses. And then, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the other shooter uh, was clearly had, you know, an, an ideological bent to it. Or I mean, did, am, I, am I misrepresenting that? Well, I think first of all, there's, a, there's more of a focus in the legacy media on the first shooting. Um, and, um, and that was the first one. Also more people were killed. Um, it was, there seemed to me a more, exp, a more explicit ideological orientation. So that makes it, I think, easier for people to kind of analyze where I think there's still some confusion over the Dayton shooter. I mean, I haven't, I haven't followed the details, like the, the background of, of that shooter and gone into it. I have seen some discussion of him being at an Antifa rally or him having some kind of more kind of this ideological ambivalence that may include some sympathies mm. to Antifa, which would be on the left, uh, the far left, I suppose. Um, but, uh, but it's also, it's also hard to know. Cause I feel like there have been times in the past where if there is a shooter or a violent actor who has sympathies on the left side of the spectrum, that's uncomfortable for a lot of people. So it just doesn't get discussed. And that's not some kind of nefarious thing. It's just that there's no easy narrative for people to latch on to. Right, right. And I think that distorts the coverage in some sense. Again, like it, perhaps it's too early to really say too much about what motivated the Dayton shooter. When, you know, again, like I'm not someone who wants to like jump into that conversation, come to certain conclusions about that. But I, I do, I did notice this kind of like, oh, well, you know, well, this is, this doesn't necessarily fit into a predetermined narrative, right? right. Um, so, uh, well, so, so, you know, um, how do you, how do you then think about you, since you've, you studied a lot about um, radicalization, you know, in the, in the Middle Eastern context and the, you know, the, the rise of ISIS and the rest of this, how do you uh, think about radicalization. And let me let me sort of lay out what I'm getting at. It it's always struck me that uh you know you have people that go off and 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 kill, right? And on some level whether it's clinical uh mental illness or a set of circumstances that puts a person to that. And you know, the process of radicalization however want you want to talk about that perhaps facilitates putting someone in that mindset, but it's, it's a deeply antisocial, something's broken, not necessarily, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to draw some sort of psychological line of what is insanity versus what's, but something is broken inside a person to be driven to do something like that, right? Or am I, am, is that not a good way to think about radicalization? And do you see that there's, that there's a, a uh, sort of strict defining line between people who are mentally ill versus people who are perfectly sound and have just been radicalized, radicals, radicalized by ideas. Can you yeah, pick that sure. apart? So, you know, from my perspective, um, and as an example, you know, having interviewed friends and family of Tunisian foreign fighters who joined ISIS, and this came up in a number, number of conversations I had was the individual level factors matter a lot because, and that might, that might almost be too obvious in the sense that if, let's let's say you take two people in a particular town or village in a certain part of Tunisia, right? They they're part of the same environment, 
on on the social on the social or community level and some of the same stressors are there in terms of like economic factors unemployment underemployment um kind of being angry about what was going on in Syria which which is how a lot of this got attention initially in Tunisia people were outraged about what the Assad regime was doing and you know so but then then you have to explain why does one person so let's say let's say they're even like brothers or or, or close friends one decides to go um travel and fight for ISIS and the other stays put but they might otherwise have similar ideological or political orientations so clearly the person who decided to go something happened there that kind of pushed that person over the edge to make that decision and you know what i found in my interviews was that not always but there does tend to be like a life event that stays with someone that that and they're not quite the same afterwards there could be some trauma or someone in their life um you know they lose someone in their life or um they're going through a very difficult time that's not that's not um that's not enough on its own but it is a contributing factor that has to be brought into the conversation right and that's why talking about how specific individuals radicalize and trying to understand the stories of individuals becomes really important that said there's a limit to how far you can go with that because every individual story is a little bit different and um i do recall there there um i won't say who it is cuz i'm i'm worried about kind of you know misquoting her but um or maybe maybe it's fine to say i think jessica stern who, who's an expert on on radicalization she had a very good line in one of her books and i remember it, it again this is not an exact um quote but something along the lines of radicalization is a bit like love that it's very personal and it's very hard to measure and understand in an empirically systematic way because it's about the intangibles and what these emotional currents that are going on in people and it's interacting with other variables and it's very very personal right so that's why you know i'm not so we have to understand the individual stories but i think what's more helpful like from a policy standpoint or for us as analysts or observers is to look at what makes radicalization more or less likely all other things being equal because you can never you can never interfere in people's personal lives and stop them at the at just the right moment but what we can do is talk about the societal level factors that policymakers do have influence on right yeah right so so um you know it's interesting you talk about especially foreign fighters right uh and some are are you know uh convinced to go fight i i was thinking as you were talking uh the extent to which uh you know when you 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 enroll in the army the whole process of of boot camp also is to you know get you sort of motivated to a certain extent to be able to actually go fight in a war and i there's a i imagine there's a parallel there too where the role of well call it indoctrination or ideology or sort of getting a person to the headspace of saying well you know i i'm willing to sacrifice my life and go actually fight i mean i think the 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 act of going to war of committing to going to war uh to a certain extent is is actually a very profound uh sort of again as i was getting getting at earlier sort of a break with socialization you know you and i as supposedly reasonably well balanced individuals we're not likely to go do something like that because 
I don't know. You know, I mean, it, it would require an incredible leap for me to act in such an antisocial way, to actually go take a life, you know? Um, and, and, and it's, it's, so what, what is then, um, because I think this is what people get at when they talk about radicalization is the role of ideas and they focus on that, right? And the, the role of ideology to the exclusion of all the other factors that you said. So they, they try and lash onto ideology as the one thing that maybe we can control, right? But and is that helpful? Yeah, but, but ideology is actually like somewhat difficult to control. Like it, ideas are there in the public discussion. I mean, if a war against an ideology is first of all rather broad. I mean, if the if the war is against white nationalism, there are tens of millions of Americans who sympathize with some aspects of what folks might consider, that doesn't mean they're white nationalists, but there are aspects of the white nationalist mindset that they might be sympathetic to, right? So then we get into how are we, like, what does it mean to fight against an ideology that has inroads into a broad cross-section of society, you know? Um, but I think, Demir, one thing that you're getting at, I think is really important, which is the socialization aspect in the sense that, let's say, you know, and we talked about the pre-modern era last time as well as a kind of, and this is maybe an oversimplification, but in the pre-modern era, when you went to war, you went to war as part of a collective. That wasn't really, that wasn't a product of a lack of socialization. So the, the impetus for violence is always there. It's a question of, is it channeled in particular ways? Is it regulated by, by um, the legitimate conduct of war or battle? I think what we're seeing now is, that impetus towards violence or towards anger is is going to be there as a constant throughout human you know human history, but what we have now is a kind of more individual individualist culture where people and this doesn't just apply to the U.S. but also to the Middle East. People are better educated; they have more access to information on their own. They they grow up in a context where choice is everything. So they're making choices about what they believe and what they want to be angry about. So that can apply to a Tunisian as well. They have more, in a sense, freedom to kind of go in these different directions and then to be exposed to different intellectual inter intellectual interlocutors who could be quite extreme. And they're like, oh, they're latching on to particular ideas where in a more pre-modern regulated environment, where the individual isn't paramount, it's hard to see that same process happening in the same way because the socialization and the social constraints are overwhelming. Mm. Does that make sense? No, no, it totally does. Uh, the, here, here's, the, here's the question. Is there, is there a difference in your research or in what you've read in general uh, between, uh, say, people in Tunisia who go join uh, as foreign fighters versus... Um, uh, let's say, uh, you know, young Muslim men in Europe who are radicalized uh, to go, you know, uh, drive a truck uh, through a crowd or, you know, do a bomb attack or, you know, or so is there is there any qualitative difference between that? Um, because, you know, what you're talking about, the sort of belonging to a whole versus versus the individuation. Again, I'm far from an expert in this, but I, 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 I've read things that talk about the fact of you know, the, the, uh, individuals, uh, in Western societies, maybe first, in, uh, generation immigrants or maybe second generation immigrants, uh, they feel 
the the sort of disconnect from the society they're found in, and they're then grasping for things to orient them within uh, within the Western society, or you know, uh, to some sort of tradition, which then you know through the internet perhaps they 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 find a certain kind of strand of ideology which compels them to do violence. Whereas, is it different in the Middle East? Someone joining to fight and go fight in a foreign war, where it's more of a sense of I belong to this community and I'm 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 joining an army or or some sort of fight. So in a sense, is it are foreign fighters in that context more socialized versus the sort of lone, you know, alienated attacker? Uh, and you know, to me, the reason I ask this is because it, it 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 helps me maybe think through how should we be thinking of you know the uh, these unfortunate. Uh, young men who are 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 you know uh, yeah, clearly yeah. reacting and acting through a bunch of stuff here in the states. Well, I do think networks matter. So, but but that would apply, I think, to some extent in both Europe and in in Tunisia. So, chances are, if you are a, a foreign fighter from a Muslim minority community in Europe, um, you can kind of like stake it out on your own. But you know, oftentimes there are are networks and people are introduced to, to these ideas by other folks in a certain community. Um, and that's certainly what happens in Tunisia is that you um, you might hear about someone else who went to go, uh, you know, fight in Syria. And that kind of, in, that kind of puts the idea, it, it, it makes the idea plausible because until you hear about someone else going or until you know about someone else going personally, it's still mostly a theoretical thing, right? So I, I think that that kind of network effect is important. But when a Tunisian is is joining, say, it doesn't have to be ISIS necessarily. We're also Tunisians who join Jabhat Nusra, another an Al Qaeda affiliate, another extremist organization. That um, that uh, that that is more. There's they're still in a sense joining a group, right? Which to me is different than a mass shooter who's fundamentally from start to finish acting alone. And there isn't really any collective aspect. I mean, maybe there are communities online, but ultimately this is a lone shooter who's acting in a very, in, in a very kind of, you know, singular way. So I think there are differences there, but what the common trend I think is a sense of dislocation. And you might, people might ask, well, why would, why would Tunisians feel dislocation? It's maybe more understandable um, in Europe because of the, the, um, the, the kind of cultural disconnect in some of these Muslim minority communities. But in Tunisia, you have an interesting, you have these relevant factors of a community, of a country that doesn't really know what it is or what it's going to become because it experienced forced secularization for se several decades under Ben Ali and Bourguiba and then the the revolution of 2011 introduces this newfound freedom and people are trying to figure out what it means to be Tunisian. And there's a stark ideological divide between Islamists and secularists and like everything in between. And then you have ultra conservative Salafis who are for the first time preaching. And um, that that introduces a kind of uncertainty where um, and Tunisia didn't have Tunisia didn't have a kind of a pedigree or a history of organized Islamic expression. 
So oftentimes people were finding out about different Islamic currents just on their own because the Muslim Brotherhood equivalent in Tunisia and Nahda was pretty much destroyed in the 1990s and 2000s. So they didn't really have a presence in everyday life. And um, so, which is quite different than say a country like Egypt, where even though you had repression under Mubarak, there were still these strong communities of Islamic action or Islamic intellectual orientation that were there even, even during authoritarianism. So that's one factor that I think plays a role in the case of Tunisia is, um, but again, like, you know, it's very, this is not a science and there's a lot of disagreements among people who look at this stuff. And I think we're going to have a lot of the same disagreements when we're talking about the fight against white nationalism and a lot of it's going to be impressionistic and a lot of it's going to be about what side of the partisan divide you're on um, and whether you're sort of um, like, I don't want another war on terrorism. I don't want another forever war. I mean, that's not a great thing. So when people say, well, oh, well, we should, you know, um, we have to learn from, you know, the the war on terrorism in the Middle East, but let's just remember that that wasn't necessarily the most successful interlude. I mean, the last 18 years since 9-11, I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff that happened in the name of the war on terrorism. And some of that includes um, restricting civil liberties. And I, you know, Demi, I sent you this uh, article that I was reading just before I got, got here um, about how there's now a debate about, do we have too much freedom of speech? This yeah. is in the New York Times. Yeah, yeah. And there's now, should we have... Um, you know, an approach to freedom of speech and expression that's more akin to what we have in Europe, where there are actually qualifications about how far freedom of speech can go. That stuff freaks me out. Yeah. Now, look, I mean, um, I, 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 just to sort of back up a little bit on this, right, is is that, um, yes, uh, I, that always seems to come up. I mean, to me, reading that article in New York Times uh, reminds me uh, – a little bit of the futility, I think, of, uh, and maybe we're getting smarter about this and how we debate, and uh, maybe these shootings are going to to change things. But but the the extent to which, uh, given the Bill of Rights uh, and given how entrenched these rights are, I feel like th- that these are almost cries in the wilderness. You know, the, these like well, free speech restrictions and things like that. What I think, though, however, is likely. And again, let me just, again, back up a little bit and say that I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I did pop onto Twitter to, to mock a little bit this idea that we're going to have a global war on domestic terrorism. That I mean, it's a... It's a, it's so, a you, so you got a sense of it, too. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and, and it's, a, it's a preposterous idea. What are we talking about? Regime change? <laughs> like, so when you saw that, like, what was your reaction? How did you feel when you were seeing this commentary? Were you... Were you surprised? You're like, this is like the same bullshit that you normally expect. Honestly, what, what, it, what, what hit me on it was, was what... I started by saying I, I had this feeling that people needed comfort and yeah. they're just venting, you know? So I actually, I, I tweeted some, some, uh, you know, kind of very dismissive stuff and kind of felt bad. Like right after I did it, I was like, okay, whatever. These are, these are, these are, there are, you know, nerdy commentators trying to, to find comfort in something and find certainty in action. Like we can do something to stop this. I mean, to a certain extent, I get it, right? I, I, I get the feeling that you, you feel helpless and you want to do something about it. And I, I share your, 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 your worries about, you know, the, the directions where this goes. Ultimately, on freedom of speech, and 
I hate to say it, you know, also on guns, I, I don't think there's going to be that much movement on any of that. It's too entrenched in our, in our things. But where it could, you know, one of the, the lessons, if you will, or call it um, uh, one of the maybe not properly learned lessons, but, or maybe not talked about enough learned lessons from the global war on terror, is that a lot of this heavy-handed stuff doesn't work. But more troublingly, I think what what can work uh, and has been tried and done in the United States throughout history is actually more kind of, uh, you know, like state surveillance and things like that of groups trying to track yeah. this sort of stuff. I mean, you think about what, uh, you know, the FBI was doing in the, uh, the 50s and 60s and, and, and um, there's a precedent for this. And... Uh, you know, again, I think the barriers to these things already under Bush have been eroded because of the global war on terror uh, about what can be done domestically. Um, and I think those are it's 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 society's uh, antibodies to that kind of overreach that I think are getting worn down. So I think if we find out that there have been abuses of domestic uh, surveillance, I think you will have less potentially less pushback from Americans than you did after, you know, the sort of details of, of Bush's. Yeah, and, and certainly suffering. less from the left. I mean, I think you'd have outrage on the right. Under, uh, uh, well, but, depends, I think. Or no? <laughs> well, it depends, depends who's president. I, I really do think that oh, there's yeah, a lot that's, of. That's what a lot of this depends on. Yeah. But certainly, like, you would think that the left under Bush was, and and I think this was a good thing about Democrats and liberals and folks on the left is that they were saying, hey, let's not forget about civil liberties. Let's stand up for this. And the ACLU played a very important role um, at a time when there was a lot of fear and a lot of people were like, hey, and the polling, I think, made this pretty clear. A lot of Americans were cool after 9-11 with giving up some degree of personal freedoms in the name of this war on terror. And now I think that the left, because now it's in a different position, would probably um, – and. Uh, would support or some sections of the left would would support or justify similar things done against uh, the other side in the name of a kind of domestic war on terrorism. So that but even if heavy handed um, government actions work and I, I would put work in quotation marks, um, there are also second and third order effects that we can't always anticipate. And this is always a danger of having um, significant government interventions in regards to things we don't really understand that well, we can't, I mean, there could be other, it could work in the short term, but provoke other, you know, other problems. And I also think that when we're trying to understand terrorism, domestic or foreign or whatever, so whether it's a white nationalist terrorist or, you know, um, a Muslim extremist terrorist in the Middle East, the goal of a terrorist is to compel the target government or the target population to do things they otherwise wouldn't do. It's meant to provoke overreactions that um, that sort of punctuate the equilibrium. It's meant to create disequilibrium in societies. So I actually support pretty strong um, restrictions on, on guns. And I'm, and I might actually be like um, somewhat outside of the mainstream on that. Um, but at the same time, I'd worry that if you have, like, let's say you have Australia-style restrictive gun laws, which I'd generally be open to a discussion on, I do worry about the kind of polarization in a country like ours that that would provoke. 
And I think that's in part what some of these, what right-wing fanatical types kind of want. They want the government to overreach. So that puts like, so I'm torn on, on some of these things because I think we need pretty serious gun laws, but I also, I also can't anticipate what that would mean. In Australia, there's more, I think, public openness to pretty restrictive gun laws. I don't know, considering our history and our constitution and, uh, you know, I just don't know what that would mean in the American context. Also, and I think that when people say, well, the reason that that the El Paso shooting or the other shootings happen because because we're very permissive on on gun accessibility. I'm also thinking to myself, well, we've always been we've been permissive for a very long time. So if you're saying that there's an uptick in mass shootings and that's because of gun accessibility, there's a there's a kind of empirical problem there because um uh, you know, and I I think this is where political science becomes helpful. Um, so if, if, um, if access to guns is held constant as a variable, that it's pretty easy, then that can't be the explanation for why there's an uptick because it doesn't make sense in terms of the variables, right? Sure. But I mean, I, I'll give you the answer. That would be du jour. Obviously that it's, it's not, it's not guns qua guns, but it's, it's white nationalism that's doing it. It's ideology that's driving people to more violence. So which one is it then? So then it's not guns then? Well, no, sure. I mean, but we, as, as we said, right, the, the, the consensus now obviously is, well, we should regulate guns to make it harder for these politically unacceptable ideas to, you know, wreak havoc on our societies. Uh, but also the root cause is this sort of idea thing. But let's talk about the idea thing because I think that's, that's really important. First, you're absolutely right. Uh, to note, and I think it's a really important point that, uh, the, the whole point of these, you know, crazy online communities like, you know, 8chan that just got shut down this week, yeah. uh, 4chan community, all these sorts of weird places that are completely anonymous and you have these, these people posting, um, there's, there's, seems to be a culture of egging people on to do it and to, you know, like, yeah, take the leap, take the leap, do it. It's a sort of, gleeful nihilism that permeates the whole thing. But the other big idea is just that. It's, it's, it's all a lie, you know, and we can expose the lie by basically encouraging a kind of overreach in society. So yeah. it is, it, there's a logic there that, that's, that's totally pushing that. What, what, what's, however interesting to me, uh, is, you know, you, you started this conversation talking about how you're uncomfortable about how, you know, quote, quote you, your side, you know, on the left is sort of approaching this and the sort of unease that that gives you. Um, I, I, I really feel like what we're going through right now is, is a kind of, I mean, it's, it's something that, that happens in the United States periodically. It's a, it's a kind of moral panic of sorts that's, that's, that's driving a lot of the way we, we talk about and, and think about these things. And there's almost a kind of, I don't know how to put it, uh, like, displaced religious feeling. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to, oh, this is shady bait right I, here. I am, I oh am, my God. I, 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 well, I am, I'm, I am doing a podcast with you. I'm trying to bait you. That's, a, that's part of the, the, the goal here. Oh my God. This is like my favorite topic. <laughs> I know. So, so look, it's, it's, uh, um, it's, it's, uh, I, but let me, let me, let me sort of round out that idea. It's, uh, it's more than just, uh, religion, it's that, that for the left, um, 
I would argue that uh, the kind of, you know, what what normally is just sort of, uh, I don't know how conscious is it, it is among the, the the faithful, but it's particularly a subconscious thing among the left because they are so professedly secularized by and large. So their uh, their their piety and moralism about these things is not seen as a set of you know organizing beliefs, but it's seen as a pure truth. So it leads to a kind of 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 like extra extra zeal among the left. Whereas I think you know uh, 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 again a more socialized believer who understands that belief doesn't make it any less true, but is is is. Uh, uh, I feel like less at war with with the outside world than this kind of mentality of a secularized left that sees, um, you know, its set of values and beliefs as the absolute truth and anything that goes against this as not just, you know, in disagreement with, but fundamentally, you know, wrong, morally wrong. And they're blind to the moral element of their of their belief system, I guess. Does that make sense? What I'm getting yeah, at? Yeah, totally, there? totally. And I think this moral panic is is part of um, is in some sense part of who we are as Americans that we we like to feel moral panic. But then again, maybe everyone likes to feel moral panic. I think it is somewhat universal because it is. I because I like feeling it too, and I you know I think that to the extent that we're aware of it, we try to check it. You know, maybe we maybe we sometimes indulge in reverse moral panic where in our bid to be contrarian and to fight what we see as an overzealous left purity wokeness that we almost do like a mirror image of that. And we can, we have to be careful about that. I think on our, on our own, on our own part, but I, I, um, but I'm someone, you know, as someone who works on, on the role of religion in public life, I mean, I'm very much a believer, if you will, in um, the pervasiveness of belief that, it's very hard to find people who don't believe in something or people who don't want to believe in something. And I think it's granted there are exceptions to this. And, you know, um, I don't know, Demir, like I, maybe you're an exception. <laughs> I don't <know> what I mean. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. Um, but I think, I think most people throughout, throughout human history until the present day, um, they, um, they, they, there has to be some coherent, belief system that organizes their life or organizes their interactions with their fellow citizens. And that's so even with the most secular reaches of of the left, I think that's why we're seeing, and I think you put it this way, displaced religion, because we have experienced the decline or loss of Christianity. That That doesn't mean that the impulse towards certainty is gone. It just means that it has to find it has to find expression in other ways. And I think that wokeness is an example of that, that it gives people certainty. There's purity, there's atonement. I think we talked a little bit about this last week on the podcast. So all these things, uh, or maybe we didn't. <laughs> maybe we talked about What other podcast are you on, Shadi? <laughs> or maybe we just talked about it when we were hanging out sometime. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, okay, so this like the, the language of atonement of sin, and I see this so much, and maybe that's why I, I think we might have talked about it last week. This idea of America being a sinful nation and having to to atone for its badness. This is all this is all kind of religious rhetoric in the service of secular ends, right? So that's one thing I would say, and I think there's also something potentially more. There's a more 
it can sometimes be in a sense even more messianic or more or more uncompromising because secular religion can't wait until the afterlife. It has to kind of claim its victories in this world because this world is all it has. Now, granted, religious people don't necessarily act this way in real life, but at least in theory, there's a strain of religious thought in Christianity, Islam, uh, Christianity and, and, and Islam in particular, and maybe to some extent in Judaism, although I'm not as, I'm not as familiar with, with some of those. So maybe I, I could be missing something there, but um, this idea that, Hey, um, this life is inherently um, imperfect. We are broken by sin um, the only true and final judgment is from God, and that will only come in the day of judgment after we pass, so on and so forth, which does allow at least some some practitioners of various faiths to say, hey, we might want some things in this world, but if we don't get them, then that's also not the, the end of the world. That's okay, and we can wait and we can defer judgment or postpone judgment until the next life, right? And um and there's and this is something that I've been thinking a lot about, and I've been you know doing I've been dial doing dialogues with um, Christian friends, you know evangelicals and you know Catholics, but it's definitely there in terms of this idea of being broken by sin and that perfection is not possible until the return of Christ. So you do have these things that you can find in Christianity that lend themselves, I think, to a non maximalist view of what is possible through, say, public policy, where I don't necessarily sense that even the pretense of humility with some of my interlocutors on the left. There isn't even a pretense. And you might say, well, Christians, they're this is would be the criticism that, oh, Christian evangelicals or Protestants or whatever, they're pretending and they're using this rhetoric, but they want to impose in this world just as much as anyone else. Maybe, fine, that could be true for a lot of people, but at least there's the pretense. What happens when on the left, you don't even have, you're not even pretending to have any epistemological humility? You know, you know what it is? It's, it's, we, we, we hit on it a little bit last time. Um, it's that, that last book by Peter Berger that, that, uh, yeah. that again, you know, talks about, uh, he, he did a lot of research with, with uh, evangelicals with very literalist beliefs who nevertheless, you know, were able to sort of compartmentalize those and and sort of live a a modern existence without actually even questioning a, a, a relatively literalist interpretation of the Bible, which they took to be a core segment of their beliefs. And even if one were to sit down and, you know, play some game of gotcha and say, well, these don't match up, in lived existence, this caused no problems for them. In a sense, they were... They were uh, Though there was a contradiction there, they 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 lived a a kind of of uh, uh, political existence in America that 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 worked perhaps. I guess what I'm getting at on the left, you're alluding to this a little bit as well. It's 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 um, I, I'm, this is people jump down your throat if you say this, but there's a kind of extremism to it in the sense that it's it's because they're blind to the fact that uh, you know they are in fact ensconced in a set of beliefs. Um, and they, they're never forced to, uh, maybe even square 
uh, a belief set with, well, put it this way, a, a, a liberal tradition that is the, the core of America. Um, I would say that, that a certain sort of, and a growing subset of, you know, yeah, the woke left, um, don't recognize that they are behaving in uh, what are outwardly easily defined as as kind of extreme ideological ways, and they don't see that that uh, uh, you know these spheres or anything. It's it's basically it's a kind of purity dogma uh, that they that they're that they're uh, espousing. It's 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 like they're swimming in ideology and they don't know it. Yes. Now, obviously, look, I mean, how do I put it? Everyone, to a certain extent, has a set of beliefs, as you said, that, you know, they actually take to be true. Um, but it's interesting, you know, I, part of the reading that I've been doing sort of on the side that's in no way related to this, I've been uh, reading about uh, uh, the Yugoslav communist Milo Manjulas, who got, you know, run out of the, the party by Tito in the, in the 50s and... and um, reading the book I just finished is his uh, uh, conversations with Stalin. Oh yeah. Is that what you've been tweeting? I've been tweeting a, a <laughs> lot about that. It's, it's a, it's a great book. We'll talk about that some other time, but, but uh, what's interesting about it is both at the same time, how ideologized everything is the way he talks. Uh, but at the same time, you know, he is not unaware of the fact that, his is one ideology among many. And I mean, part of the drama of the book is, you know, him coming to terms with the fact that Soviet communism is different from Yugoslav communism and the role of, you know, Soviet imperial ambitions and politically how that's playing out. But it's also even any references he makes to the West and, you know, the capitalist order, it's dismissive, but there's a recognition of, of, of a kind of, you know, relativism, that these are separate spheres of values, which you don't exactly hear, I would say, there's a kind of absolutism to the left's moralizing about these issues. This is evil. These people are evil because they hold these beliefs. They're dangerous because they have guns and they go on shooting rampages. And as we were saying earlier, I, I you know, I, 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 I question whether ideology in and of itself is enough. I mean, I think it, it takes a certain kind of leap to to do that kind of horrific violence, uh, though ideology clearly plays a role. Um, but, but to me, what's troubling is that the left is so sure of itself in a way that, that it's so non, for, for all the sense that it's, it comes out of this postmodernist moment of, of relativism and, uh, you know, a deep tradition of supposed critique, it is deeply unselfcritical and deeply unable to situate itself in the world in a way that allows it to both make sense of the world, you know, and to actually participate in a pluralist democracy, I would argue. Yeah, and this is why, you know, any reference to evil suggests a certain kind of, um, a certain kind of Christian way of looking at the world, it, it, uh, but just in a different form. And I don't know if, you know, and that's the thing people don't realize, like, the idea of evil is fundamentally religious, right? Evil doesn't like, at least from my standpoint, um, and maybe there's some debate in literature about this, but once you start talking about evil, you're talking about God and where you can't, you can't really situate where evil is 
independent of where God is. But putting that aside for a second, I, I do think that you're getting at something really important, which is that woke progressives, they have no tradition that constrains them that is external to them. Yep. It's a sort of in, internal self, it's a self-referential belief system that has no end and no limit where um, at least what you have with, let's say, Christianity uh, or other religions, Islam, others, Judaism, is you have, again, you may not have this in practice, but you certainly have it in theory, which is fixed tenets upon which you can judge what, what people do and why they're doing it and if they should be doing it. And it can be held at least somewhat constant, at least some of the foundational elements of it, right? With woke progressivism, there are, as far as I can tell, no fixed tenets of the faith. It's it's an endlessly progressive faith. It's always aspiring to something new, and it's always eating its children or whatever that phrase might be. Um, religion is not meant to be that way. Religion is at least mainstream religious traditions and the ones I'm more familiar with, which are the Abrahamic traditions, there is a kind of inherently small Sikh conservative tradition in each of these religions that does impose constraints upon practitioners. Now, the practitioners might not choose to observe those constraints and if they can choose to be radical and go outside of the classical tradition of these faiths, but at least that, at least those that conservative constraint is is at least there in some sense, right? That to me is a fundamental difference. And that's why I think that um, non-religion masquerading as religion, or maybe that's not even the right way to put it, but wokeness, religion masquerading as wokeness, or maybe it's vice versa, who knows anymore? That to me, it, it holds out the potential of being more dangerous because it it follows no small c conservative tradition. There's nothing that will say this is constant. Does that make sense? It totally I mean, makes I just, sense. No, no, it totally makes sense. I mean, I, 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 in the sense that I was equating it to religion, I, I, I recognize now that you say it. That's that's precisely why it's wrong to say that. It's 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 more. It's a kind of. Uh, well, again, I mean, it's a kind of extremism, really. It's yeah. it's in the sense of there's nothing there's nothing inherently extremist about religion per se, though there are religious extremists. There's something there's something extreme about this in the same way that religious extremists are extreme because they are unable to, well, again, quite frankly, socialize. I guess that's that's what I, I keep sort of coming back to as I think through this with you. It's what's and this is not to equate you know mass shooters with you know, the, with wokeness. I'm not even going there. That's not what I'm getting at. But I am getting at that there's something happening. Um, and maybe it's happening because there's a, uh, there's a lack. There's a lack of, of glue uh, in our societies that, that is, is tying things together. A lack of meaning, perhaps, you know? Um, and it's expressing itself on the one hand, uh, by uh, individuals, lonely individuals, uh, atomized people uh, living on the internet, finding meaning and being driven to extreme acts uh, through some mix of, you know, personal circumstance and ideology. Uh, and on the other hand, there's a kind of 
other phenomenon that's not actively violent and necessarily leading to uh, to the kind of outrages as these, but that is nevertheless very toxic, uh, is not conducive to a healthy Republican attitude, to a healthy Democratic approach to to uh, to things, um, and 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 that there's that there's a a maybe a a similar lack that's driving both. I don't know. Maybe that's oversimplifying. Yeah. So, so tell me more. So tell me a little bit more about the lack of meaning part of it. Again, since I've been doing a lot of reading about the, you know, pre-Cold War, uh, or that's not the Cold War period. um, What's striking is the extent to which insofar we're already well into the sort of secularized moment in, uh, in Western culture in Western tradition, secularism is, you know, dominant, less so maybe in America, but certainly in Europe. Um, but you have an existential fight that, that, that presents all sorts of meanings and valences. What's striking to me as I read, and this is not just reading, reading these, uh, these communists and their memoirs, but, uh, but also you read, you read, uh, histories and accounts of the, just generally the, the mid 20th century. Um, the, the liberalism that drives sort of American self-conception and American drive to, you know, win or, you know, prevail or survive in the Cold War uh, is, is it's, it's, it somehow feels more uh, resonant and meaningful because the threat is real. And it's, it's, uh, the ideas are argued somehow, I think, with a sense of more belief. Communism falls apart. The left is left without any kind of, I think, legitimating set of ideas, any sort of framework anymore. And even liberalism on the right, or I don't know, it's not fair to say that liberalism on the right, like liberalism on the American, but say, you know, the, the Cold War right plus sort of Cold War liberals, uh, in general then default to this kind of chestless neoliberal meliorism, which is, well, you know, end of history, here we go, we figured it out technocratic this that and the other we're we're headed to just boundless prosperity and it's just a couple of tweaks left and the world gets solved neither is very satisfying the left has no answer and they sort of parrot a maybe more social democratic version of this um and uh and on the right you know i it's also i mean it's 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 largely godless it's it's technocratic it's nothing so it seems to me like on the one hand you have on the the right a growing sense of of uh, a sense that this is empty, that the individualism that, that liberalism used to champion against uh, the kind of godless communitarian communist alternative uh, has led to all sorts of dead ends. And we have, uh, we've built a society that provides no meaning, no sustenance to, to communities. And it's an empty existence where all we're doing is just trying to do better and, uh, you know, get rich and our, our lives are empty. And on the left, you have not that kind of despair, but a kind of regression to, again, a kind of extremism, which is uh, doesn't recognize its own sort of how it, it's it's just not self-critical at all. So it has a kind of 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 sense of revealed truth that you know if you if you're woke, you get it, and it's true, and everything is false. So it's a kind yeah. of 
ideological well, extremism and rigidity. That that and I would I would argue that both of those are kind of reactions to a kind of lack of satisfaction, intellectual, spiritual, broader satisfaction with a meaning of life sort of thing. Well, so one thing is that um, there's no moderate wing in the woke church. Right, right. <laughs> so, I mean, that's part of it here, you know. What it, can there be one? <laughs> there can't. At least I don't, I don't know if there can be because I think that would just sort of defeat the purpose of, of wokeness, which re- requires a kind of ideological outbidding. Um, but like your, your bigger point, and I'm glad I asked you to elaborate because I think you're, this is really interesting to me. And I think like I'm working it out now as I'm talking is I think there's a mismatch between the desire to believe in something strongly and the lack of strong things to believe in on the other hand, like we want to find things. We want an ideology. We want to believe. We want to return to some like religion or something like it. But then what we often end up, you know, um, what we often end up with is something that isn't particularly inspiring or isn't even particularly ideological. Um, so in the case of, we were talking last week about the national conservatism conference, that's an attempt to, um, an attempt to outline a kind of new intellectual orientation that can actually speak to the moment that we're in. But when you actually look at what the policy prescriptions are, there isn't actually a lot there. Like we're, we're reaching for something, we're groping for something, but what we actually end up with is is kind of mainstream. Like no one, with maybe one or two exceptions at the National Conservatism Conference, the ideas might be bold and radical, but then when you try to translate that into policy terms, they're always going to be underwhelming. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd go even further too. I mean, the, it's, 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 I was saying last week, I, I still believe it. It's, it's a, it's, it's it's a reaction. It's not it's not a positive program. Yeah. Uh, now you know. I mean, to to be most fair to the to to that, it's that it's to say that sure, the positive program doesn't get expression in that because someone like Patrick Dunin is uh, is a believer and has a religious tradition that lies in the back of his criticism. So all he's all he's showing is is a kind of you know reactionary criticism with the rest of it sort of assumed. Uh, but but you're right that I don't think anything anything I saw at the National Conservatism Conference has any real answers to the reality of America as it is today. It's it's a kind of uh, you know uh, if you're uncharitable you know reactionary spasm. If you're more charitable, uh, a, a an ongoing critique that assumes a kind of uh, communitarian Christianity as the as the default. But I, I, I don't think either of those, or I, I just don't think it's, 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 uh, it's actually all that useful to, uh, lived existence. I mean, I like, I like a good critique. So I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic. Well, so but. maybe this is part of it then. Like we don't actually have the courage of our convictions. I don't have the courage of my convictions in the sense that I, like you, you might, rec- like, so I wrote that, um, that article in American Affairs where I tried to, I tried to, outline what a left populism could look like and one that really embraced what I called an economics of meaning. This idea that 
You can use strong economic and class critiques to essentially fill the ideological vacuum and to move away from identity politics and and wokeness and to ground the left in a strong ideological economic, you know, so, but the, but the issue here and the weakness perhaps in my own argument is one of the reasons I'm comfortable with an economics of meaning, a kind of like Bernie, not socialism, because that's not actually what I think Bernie is offering, but a kind of a, a strong left populism that is also maybe in some sense um, an inclusive populism and that is not, you know, casting, it's casting corporations out and maybe like super rich people, but it's not like casting minorities out and therefore it offers maybe a, a tamer, a tamer approach to populism. One reason that I'm comfortable with that, I think, is because I know that the American system, because we, we have a two-party system and we have a first-past-the-post system, it won't actually allow for the fullest expression of left populism. So I can be, I, I can rest assured that there will be a kind of equilibrium regardless. Um, because do I really want to live in like the fullest expression of that? Probably not. And one of the reasons I don't want to is because like when push comes to shove, as much as I'm critical of, of liberalism, and whether it's the classical or, or partisan varieties of it, or like to the extent that I'm sympathetic to post-liberal writers and I engage with their work a lot and I find their work to be very important, the Patrick Deneens, the why liberalism failed, all of this stuff, what I often end up coming back to is, I think this is pretty good. Like in the, in the broader sweep of human history. Well, it's pretty good what we have. <laughs> Not necessarily what we have currently, like in this exact moment, yeah. but the basic, I don't want a complete alternative to liberalism. I don't want to totally experiment with some, with like Catholic integralism or some different ideological system, because for all of its faults, uh, in in broad terms, We've done very like this is this is good, yeah. And when I kind of look at, especially and here, I'm not even talking about like this could apply to Western democracies writ large, but I particularly mean it about America. The fact that we have these stark ideological divides, but you know what? As as terrible as the Trump era could have been, and yes, it's bad in many ways. I come back to the idea that it could have been a lot worse. We're still finding a way to live together. There's a kind of de facto pluralism in American life where it feels very existential, but actually it's not existential in practice. Like we're still working within the democratic process and we might be angry at each other and it might feel like it's on the brink of civil conflict, but you know what? It's not, we haven't reached civil conflict because there's something about the American system and the Amer American politics that is able to accommodate fairly high levels of polarization. 
And one of the reasons we can do that is because... No, look, I, I, here's my question uh, to you. I mean, I, I, I share your optimism by and large because you look, you look around... I, I, I think we're we're way better positioned than the Europeans are in any of this. Yeah, way better. I agree. Um, however, uh, are you? How worried are you? I mean, we started this by you saying that you you had to get off of you know Twitter. Okay, sure, Twitter, whatever. It's Twitter. Uh, but how how worried are you about the the these tendencies? About you know, yeah, I think we can we can accommodate a, a level of polarization that is. Uh, large, but it 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 does. I think for liberalism to work, and and you've 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 written about these these things that that you need a certain kind of at least base commitment to these things. And it strikes me that uh, again, let me make clear without without drawing uh, any sort of exact parallel between the violent far right and the sort of broader woke left. One does get a sense that. There's, uh, there is a kind of erosion, uh, of something important. And it's tied to, uh, a lack, a, a loss of belief in the, in the, the, the process and the, the, um, how to put it, the partiality, the, the, the partiality of liberal solutions in the sense that it's all part of a certain kind of emergent thing that doesn't come to an end. The, the 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 ultimate enemy of of a, of a of a kind of healthy liberalism is one side that is certain of itself uh, yeah and 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 uh you know obviously there are these radicalized individuals who are doing violence to try and trigger perhaps overreach and one can talk about uh you know the uh, the sociology of why and how this is happening uh, and maybe one can derive policy prescriptions about levels of surveillance and or, you know, interdiction and or ways to, to, to tackle that. But again, I would, I would suggest that there's something, something deeper and perhaps, uh, troublingly ill at play here. Uh, okay. that. So, so there's my pushback. Yeah. I think that as you get older, or maybe this is not actually true because a lot of the people who are like obsessing on Twitter are like older people. There isn't necessarily an obvious age. But I'll tell you, Shadi, I'm older than you. I'll tell you what it's like as you get older. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I want to, there's a part of me that wants to like, I, I don't, I want to live my life in a particular way and not live it in outrage or in anger or in frustration and I want to value the things that I think I want to prioritize the things that I value more, which are friends, family, meaning. Um, I want to, I want to, I want to have my own time on my weekends where I'm not checking Twitter all the time. And I want to be able to let go. I want to make space for other things in my life. Anyway, that's like, that's no, like no. a little, but I'll say, I'll say, you know, I, 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 Obviously, I share that. I've I, I've said it many a times. I, I'm I'm really I've I've quit most of the social media stuff. Uh, Twitter, I feel, is a professional necessity, and maybe that's that's what a, a heroin addict says. It's like <laughs> I I need to do this for work or something. Yes. But whatever, which you is know, what heroin addicts are known for saying. They are. I need I need to I need to shoot up because my work requires it. Um, no, but so so uh, you know I I uh, uh, I absolutely. 
agree uh, on that. But you know, it's it's it it maybe gestures at at, at you know some of the other themes that we've been talking about, uh, and maybe we can sort of uh, wrap on this. But it's 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 uh, it's that that a lot of the social media stuff um, it provides that kind of uh, cheap kick. I, again, we started talking about the fact that 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 so many people in the at the moment of these tragedies jump into it with these overheated hot takes and they're they're uh, um, they end up uh, looking for affirmation to sort of salve their empty souls <laughs> mm, <laughs> right yes. and it, it's uh and it's the more time and so so you know social media to a certain extent is is the is is a is a part of the the nexus of the causes of a lot of these 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 bad things i think that are eroding our ability to function as 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 a as a normal democracy that's leading to a kind of polarization that's not um that's not the normal polarization that's not the normal sort of uh again Look, let's not let's not let's not uh, overstate things. We we did have a civil war in this country. Polarization, you know, doesn't need social media to get to the point yeah, of that's of, a very good point of actually. massive, massive uh, organized violence where we're at each other. Actually, throats. one could one could actually make the opposite argument that social media can provide a peaceful outlet for otherwise like dangerous impulses. That because people can like talk all this shit all the time and be angry on social media, they don't have to do it. Like they don't have to like organize a militia and like fight the North or the South or whatever. Like that's also one way of looking at it. I've heard that. Right. And I mean, arguably, (laughs) no, but arguably, you know, uh, to the extent that, that even in the sixties, you know, uh, you had, you had way more um, political violence, Arguably, than we're having today. You know, these these horrific mass shootings yeah. aside, uh, it you forget was, the domestic terrorism in the sixties. Yeah, it was, a, it was a very different sort of thing. So again, that said, that said, I think I just want to latch onto what you said about you know on the very personal level about social media, uh, and maybe it's because you know, like the heroin addicts we are, we justify it that we have to be on it for some sort of reason. I personally, I, 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 I really loathe it. I really loathe it. I, I try and go there and have some fun, but then I get sucked into some nonsense. I find myself stopping myself from, from intervening. And, you know, there's that famous, uh, internet cartoon, right? Like someone on the internet is wrong. It's like, honey, come back to bed. It's like, I can't. Someone <laughs> on the internet is wrong. And, <laughs> and, and it is that feeling. It is that feeling that I think, uh, it's, it's, it may not be again polarization extreme violence all these dysfunctions uh you know may 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 not have anything to do with with social media but i i i increasingly see it as a as an unpleasant and toxic force that i i i i need to unplug from and not engage in it's it's not good it's not healthy it has its positives but it's in, in my own personal experience, I am I am making an effort to to just carve out time, as you were saying, not just on weekends, just you know, just dead time off of this. Um, yeah. So, well, to your point about there can be some positives to social media as well. I've been seeing this undercurrent with some because I I follow like maybe a 
kind of like a, a weird crowd, and I mean weird in in a positive sense. That I've 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 seen a couple friends and people I respect talk about the desecularization of America. That we might be entering a phase where by 2050 we actually see a reversion to higher levels of religious observance and and kind of at least self-reported belief. I don't know. I haven't actually looked at this very closely, but we are also in trying to, in trying to like have, in trying to not get too stuck in the moment that we're in to have a broader look and that this is just a moment. Things pass, things change. It's hard to sort of forecast some of these trends but what social media does is it, it, it unfortunately, I think, I think that is one thing I feel reasonably comfortable in saying, it compresses time and it makes everything about the present. Yes. And it makes everything about uh, gratification of our, of our emotional needs in the very, in the very immediate. It, it impacts writing in that way. It impacts writing because you do your first draft on Twitter and then maybe you write an essay. So it pollutes the downstream writing as well because you've already been validated in one way and then you're expounding again for this sort of validation thing. It's, it's, it, it creates, it narrows horizons. It, it, yeah, it greases the wheels of a certain kind of communication, but degrades it. Um, it, and, and so, so, you know, I mean, is did your your colleagues are your 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 social media scene that's talking about this uh desecularization they they link it to social media somehow that it's it's leading to uh to a a, a religious uptick or this is I don't think of- they're saying that social I don't think that social media plays a role in that but but maybe it does in a kind of counterintuitive way that because because social maybe for some people that because social media is so unpleasant and it actually kind of it brings out to the fore our sense of our lack of meaning that something isn't quite right, that in some indirect way it can push us back to deep a deeper sense of belonging or community or religious commitment or whatever it might be for an individual person. But Yeah, I could see that actually. I could see that that social media insofar as it 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 it, it takes a kind of, you know, uh hyper individualism and then sharpens it to and you're like the I, do we actually want this do we want do i want hyper individualism yeah right and right. i think that maybe some people after spending a lot of time on social media are like hey we i do not we do not want this but um but also that like we have no i we have like no fucking idea what's going to happen in 2050 like that's it it seems so far away in social media terms because as you said um, the present seems like everything when you are getting in some debate on social media and it can, and it can be hard to kind of maintain our sense of like, there is, there is a broader sweep that we're part of and we have to sort of separate ourselves from the moment. And that's what I find very helpful about unplugging is that it allows us to think a little bit more about like, what might America actually look like in 2050? And it seems plausible to me that there could be some, there could be some, I don't want to say religious awakening because that's probably overstating it, but, you know, a kind of a stabilization of religious commitment or a desire for religious belonging in the sense of like communal, the communal aspect of it. It might not even be in the sense of actually like theological conviction as much of communal 
communal aspects of religion that I think people find appealing. And, you know, maybe Marianne Williamson is a sort of an example of a spiritualist kind of expression of that desire for belonging, right? Um, but maybe that's almost extending it too much to go beyond religion. Yeah. Look, um, I mean, I, I feel like Marianne Williamson's a quintessentially American phenomenon and in a way like, you know, almost eternal, kind of like Trump ultimately, right? Mm, mm. But, but, but without, without, without going down that rabbit hole, uh, the interesting thing for me, as someone, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, very much raised secular. Uh, and I think, you know, I, religiosity to a certain extent is, is, uh, is a, is something that is, uh, part of your upbringing. But I, I, I tend to think also certain people are, are more, um, uh, I guess keen or receptive to, to that sort of worldview. For me, pulling back from social media, uh, just as an anecdote, uh, I, I, I went, uh, and, and, uh, re, uh, reinstated my membership in my, uh, alma mater's library. And I've been going hmm. to the library more where I turn off social media. It's quiet, and I read books that are actually on paper. It's 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 a weird thing. And you read them in the library, or ah, you bring yeah, yeah. them back home. I mean, one can do that in libraries. <laughs> yes, it's true. Demir, please explain to us how a library <laughs> yeah. functions. Exactly, exactly. No, look. So, so uh, yeah, maybe maybe this leads to a kind of uh, um, uh, re desecularization. Uh, but but I'm hoping that. Maybe my my hopes are 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 less grandiose. Uh, I just hope that it, as people drift away from this, uh, they they reengage with the importance of time and space to think and reflect. I think that's been the biggest casualty of social media at this point, and maybe that's that's the role of religion that religion plays for for, you know, more religiously inclined people. Uh, for me, it's, it's just, it's time to, to, to not jump to things, to, to talk, uh, or to think, or to just engage on a, on a slower pace. Um, because it, it feels that, that a lot of these ills that we're constantly talking about are, are tied to this kind of quickening, this kind of coarsening that is the result of of modernity i guess i guess that's where well, I'm, i think that's I'm part of what religion is actually meant to do maybe again in theory not necessarily in practice all the time but when you think about the idea of the sabbath and kind of carving out this space where you will you will in fact try to reflect you'll be separated from the temporal world and you will try to the extent that you can to block that out or the idea of praying five times a day in Islam where you have five times a day where you, you, um, you, you focus on God and you separate yourself. Um, there are corollaries in, in Christianity. I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to think of whatever the equivalent of that is. Well, here, Sean. Here, here's the, you know, you know what the, you know what the. You know I'm what trying I, to be ecumenical to me. Here, let me let me let me be ecumenical. I would I, I would hope that 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 something like this podcast <laughs> is the equivalent of carving out some time to hang out with friends and and discuss and talk about things on a different pace. And honestly, uh, 
this is this is so far a pretty fun experiment. No, that's what I like so much. Like I I was looking forward to coming here to your living room, Demir, and actually just like hanging out and talking about this stuff. Yeah, hopefully hopefully our listeners feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, uh, yeah, uh, let's let's do it again.